Carlsbad, people, purpose, and impact. An essential podcast for those who live, work, visit, and play in Carlsbad. Good morning and welcome everyone. My name is Brett Schonsenbach. I'm the president and CEO of the Carlsbad Chamber of Commerce. I am your host today, and I'm excited to have with me Mr. Lee Wakefield. Lee is the founder and CEO of Centir Global. Lee, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us this morning. Absolutely. My pleasure. You have a very interesting business and background, and we, we want to start with your background because uh, it's it's got quite a few interesting stops. So initially, it looks like from studying your website, you spent 23 years in the military. Is that right? Correct. So tell us a little bit about that. What, where'd you serve? What'd you do? Well, I started out actually uh, enlisting in the U.S. Army in 1970, mm -hmm. and I was a medic uh, in the Army and served at the, uh, with the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Okay. And my brother suggested that I look at and consider the Military Academy's prep school. Okay. And so um, I had never heard of it, didn't know what it was there for. But I applied and got accepted to the Military Academy's prep school, spent one year there, and then uh, got accepted to West Point mm -hmm. and uh, spent three years at West Point and was always academically very challenged yeah. uh, there because I, I didn't have the math science background, honestly, yeah. to... Uh, to be there, but I was fortunate enough to, to do so. Well, I flunked a, an electrical engineering class, and, uh, and they said, adios. I said, well, thank, <laughs> oh, no. thank you very much for a wonderful education. And I went to Weber State in Ogden, Utah. Okay. And then uh, in that year, I uh, was able to obtain essentially a triple major in mathematics, anthropology, and literature, wow. and then went to Marine Corps OCS and okay. got a commission in the Marine Corps. Okay. And so that kind of started me down the, the path with the Marine Corps as well. So you've had two different uh, services. Correct. That's, which is unusual, but I heard it's not unprecedented. No, and it, it is. And, um, and so now I tell a lot of my friends I have uh, allegiance to two corps, yeah. the the Corps of Cadets at West Point and the United States Marine Corps. Speaking of which, in just uh, a little over a week and a half is the 246th birthday of the United States Marine Corps. Fantastic. Hoorah. Yeah, that's right. Very nice. So that that's, a, that's an interesting uh, journey in and of itself. But then after that, or I think after that, maybe it was part of that, I'm not even sure, you served for six years at a U.S. embassy in Norway. Correct. Yeah, so how did that come about, and what was that like? Well, I was uh, working in Seattle at the time with the Marine Corps Reserve Unit and was selected to go to Norway and serve, and uh, it ended up being uh, two tours, uh, two three-year tours in uh, Norway, one as our assistant naval attaché, and the second tour, working as the chief of a office that dealt with all of the U.S. military preposition programs that we have in Norway. Wow! And uh, so that both of those uh, tours totaled a little over six years, 
but but in that period was able to travel all over Europe and all over Scandinavia, and uh, that was a, a tremendous uh, opportunity. Well, and it says here that you speak multiple languages, uh, Norwegian, Swedish, Danish, plus maybe others. How many languages do you speak? Well, I'm I'm passable in English yeah. uh, and Norwegian, <laughs> uh, very comfortable in Norwegian, and I can communicate in, Norwegian, in Swedish and Danish. Uh, my wife and I are studying Turkish. Oh, wow. And, uh, but my wife is the actual linguist. Ah. Uh, she has a master's degree in Spanish, but she speaks Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, French, wow. some Romanian, German, and then she speaks Norwegian and Swedish and Danish as well. Wow. So, and that was a huge asset for, uh, for us at the embassy uh, because they had never had a linguist like that uh, as part of the embassy family yeah. in Oslo. Boy, between the two of you, you got most of the world's languages covered. Maybe you just need missing the Asian ones, I guess. But man, that's a lot of languages. That's fantastic. You started Centir Global. Um, now, I'm going to quote or maybe paraphrase, not quite quote, but paraphrase your uh, your website on what Centir Global is about. Centir Global is intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and a training organization. So tell us about starting Centir Global. What was the motivation behind it and what you guys are all about? Let me go back to about 2006. Okay. And I was working for a contractor that had uh, was providing surveillance training mm -hmm. to the Marines before they deployed to either Iraq or Afghanistan. And basically it was some towers that telescoped up 110 feet in the air. They were guide off and then they had sensors, but they also had two really powerful cameras on them. And these cameras, to give you an idea, we could watch a conversation three miles away. Oh my goodness. Now those people could not see my camera. I'm watching their conversation. But what I realized is these young Marines didn't understand nonverbal behavior, mm. human behavior, and didn't understand the potential threats uh, or interactions that they were seeing on the camera. So 2006 and seven, I started reading everything I could about nonverbal behavior, mm -hmm. psychology, emotions, emotional detection. Mm -hmm. And that started me on this path. And... I found that uh, San Diego State offered a program in anti-terrorism and homeland security as a master's uh, program. Wow. So I enrolled in that, then completed that, and I was continuing to study the psychology and neuroscience of human behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, but that led me to start with another couple of guys, the company, to offer primarily training, but we could, uh, we could recommend and we wanted to recommend different uh, platforms or security enhancement capabilities, but we didn't want to represent any particular company. Yeah. We wanted to be more of an honest broker in mm -hmm. saying this may not be the right set of security cameras or systems for you in this aspect. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to have that flexibility. And then uh, 
traveled several times to Azerbaijan, training their internet or their customs officers and some of their border police, and spoke at several international conferences. And I, I saw that there was a real need for this kind of training abroad. Yeah. And so we started offering to countries like Tajikistan and Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan uh, this kind of training for their customs officers and border guard officers, and that's really what I do now, yeah. uh, at least overseas. All right, we're going to take a little pause right there. We're talking with Lee Wakefield, the CEO and founder of Centier Global, and we're going to hear a word from our sponsor, and when we come back, we're going to talk about this concept that he's already teased up a little bit, but this left of boom. So we're going to be right back. So Lee, you, you were talking a little bit about um, the training that you provide, but for you, what's really important and what I've learned from you and working with you over the last few years is this ability to sense threats and to help people um, act before a crisis happens, which is your left of boom concept. So talk about that a little bit. Okay. Uh, thank you. I it's basically recognizing potential threats before they materialize. And we can do that in a host of different ways, but we look at human behavior as one of the primary ways uh, to identify someone who is, let's say you've got a, a business, and I'm going to take Charlie Hebdo as a perfect example. I don't know if uh, the audience remembers, but... Uh, it was a, a newspaper yeah. and magazine orga, uh, organization, and they had been warned in, about... Uh, in France, right? Correct. Yeah. And they had been warned about potential threats mm -hmm. from uh, extremists and, and terrorists. Well, they had cameras. They didn't have anybody monitoring the cameras. Mm. They didn't have anybody paying attention to individuals conducting reconnaissance on their facilities and asking questions about who's meeting and where and when. And it's those kinds of things that can alert you to a potential threat yeah. before it happens and then take action and reinforce that. Yeah. And so we can do that by a person's behavior, but we can also do it by looking at a situation in an environment and detecting a change in that environment or what we call atmospherics. And that change in atmospherics, there's a reason for that. And you need to be asking why. Um, you know, we're here um, having this conversation just about six weeks or maybe a little less than six weeks past the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And, uh, you know, that um, event, I think, changed uh, America, you know, to the point where do we ever 100% feel, you know, safe in, in just going about our day-to-day -day lives? I, I think for the most part, we kind of push the threat of terrorism out of our mind, but it's never really totally gone now since 9-11 happened and kind of rocked our world, you know, talk about that a little bit. Well, it, it was a sea change in how we look at things and how we look at the world and the potential threats yeah. 
and how for so many years people were saying, we want to attack, Mm -hmm. we want to do this, and we weren't paying them any attention Mm -hmm. and didn't realize that they not only wanted to, but they had the capability and the will to do it. Mm -hmm. And so when you put those together, now all of a sudden you've got a credible threat that you're not paying attention to, and it's just a matter of when, not if, uh, that's going to happen. And so for us, we train organizations in security. Yeah. Um, local organizations, local churches, and local government organizations. And for us, security, I look at it as a three-legged stool. And the first is a proactive procedures that you develop. The second is the right mindset. And the third would be effective and innovative training programs. And I've, I've spoken to superintendents of schools and uh, principals and many others in our school district yeah. or, or school districts in California. And they have the, the mindset or they will say, uh, security is our primary interest. But the fact is, uh, in, in talking to one principal, he indicated that, well, we don't need this training because we have a resource officer. <laughs> that and, was his whole solution. Well, and, and, and this is part of that right mindset because he said, and, and I said, well, you've got 2,700 students on your campus probably 185 to 300 staff and faculty, and you've got one resource officer. Right. And so the, the mindset and then the proactive procedures to identify threats before they come in. And if you look at some of the active shooter events, yes. and there are plenty of warning signs that we either ignore or want to hide our eyes from yeah. uh, completely. And then that's where that left of boom mindset uh, doesn't pay off because if you're not paying attention to the warning signs, yeah. you're, you're going to hear a boom. Unfortunately, uh, like school environments are typical ones. Unfortunately, we hear that boom, um, but not just there, you know, um, I feel like there's so many of these active shooter events these days that they've almost become white noise in America. They're, uh, every week it feels like there's one somewhere. Well, and oftentimes the, the, the new buzzwords are active shooter training. Well, how about active security prevention mm-hmm. instead of response? Right. Because when something bad happens, who do you call? You call the first responders. Right. Well, that, by the very nature of their name, tells you that something bad has already happened, already happened. and you're responding instead of preventing. And, and that's where we come in trying to look at changing a mindset of security so that you can prevent things rather than wait until they happen and then respond. Yeah. I want to um, touch on another subject. You, because of your active work in the Middle East um, and relationships you've developed over time and, and things like that, um, when when the uh, government in Afghanistan fell apart, you were 
working to try and get some people out safely who um, weren't able to get out on their own. T- tell us a little bit about those stories and, and what your efforts were and how that's gone, or at least what you can tell. Sure. Um, over the last couple of years, I've trained about 50 to 75 Afghan border police, customs officers, and Ministry of Interior officials. Mm-hmm. And when I when this Afghans started to fall to the Taliban, there were two of these former officers who I'd trained uh, who reached out to me to see if if I could help them. And I remember them. I had been working with them to try to get Afghan border police training, either in Dubai or Tajikistan. And uh, we weren't uh, we weren't able to do that, but I had been communicating with these two individuals for quite some time. Yeah, and one of them was a female border police officer who worked actually in the airport in Kabul. Mm. And wow. in mid July, she asked me if I could help her, and uh, I started looking at how I could help get her out and some of these others who had reached out to me that I had trained and uh, was fortunate enough to be connected to some NGOs that were working inside the compound Mm -hmm. along with our military. And uh, I remember speaking to her on one WhatsApp conversation Mm -hmm. and she was absolutely terrified because she was right outside the compound and gunfire was probably 15, 20 feet away. The Taliban were trying to clear things out. Mm. And so we calmed her down and were able to actually get her into the compound. And after a couple of days, got her on a flight to Doha in the, in the UAE and then to DC. And now currently she's in Fort Bliss, Texas, uh, going through a process of paperwork and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I've, uh, my wife and I have agreed to be her sponsor. Nice. And so um, what that means is our, f- our family is going to grow by one, yeah. uh, probably before the end of the year. Yeah. And she's going to come live with us. And I want her to improve her English. And I want her to get an education so that uh, go to college, go to probably Miracosta, and then on to a four-year college here in California so that we can set her up for success here in the United States. How old is she, approximately? She's about 31. Okay. And she's worked uh, for about five to seven years as a border police officer. Mm -hmm. And I knew she was also very much in danger because working that long in the embassy or in the airport, mm-hmm. she worked in a place where most of the the Taliban who were traveling overseas, either for meetings or different things like that, saw her yeah. and interacted with her. Yeah. And so being a female in that environment and yeah. and being in charge of their coming and going, she, uh, she was she was very definitely a target. Yeah. And so, I was really grateful uh, that we could get her out of there and now uh, bring her here so that she can 
have have a fighting chance yeah. to to be a success. And there are two other groups that uh, I'm helping right now. Could not get them out of Afghanistan, but I was able to work with a a New York City law firm who is on a pro bono basis putting together the application to the State Department for humanitarian parole visas for them. And one is a former spokesperson for the Ministry of Interior of Afghanistan, and uh, the other are three members of a family of Hazaras. Mm. And the Hazara is a very persecuted minority sect in Afghanistan. In fact, a lot of the ISIS-K bombings that have occurred recently are targeting the Hazara uh, sects. Mm. So I got to try to get them out. Yeah, yeah. So they were working to get them visas to Pakistan. And from there, if they can get to Islamabad or Karachi, where we have a consulate, then our State Department can help them through the efforts of this uh, New York City law firm. Well, that's great that they do that pro bono, and hopefully it can be effective in getting their, getting them out, getting their lives protected, and give them some opportunity to move on. So this young lady who, uh, what, what would that might be coming to your home, what's the timeline look like for her to get through all the maze of paperwork from, I think you said she's in Texas right now, from there to here, to Carlsbad. I, I have an idea that maybe before Thanksgiving, uh, we'll have her with us. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure because, and she's not sure because of the timeline of the, the paperwork. And right now her English is, is not quite clear enough that, that we can communicate uh, everything that we need or that the, the, the State Department can communicate with her, though they do have Dari or Pashtu uh, translators working with those folks in in uh, uh, in Fort Bliss. And when you worked with her before, professionally, it was always with translators, I assume. Correct. It yeah. was. Yeah, we could we could speak, but I don't know Pashtu. I don't know Dari, and uh, but she is learning. I I can tell from uh, a month, a month and a half that she's uh, been here that we've been talking that her English is improving. Quite a bit, and yeah. and they she is attending a English as a second language program sure. at Fort Bliss right now. Okay. So they offer those, and uh, I have a meeting Tuesday with an aid organization down in San Diego that does this for Afghan refugees, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm going to meet with them to talk about educational opportunities for her and some of these others if I can get them out of. Uh, Afghanistan. Well, is there anything our listeners could do to help if, if uh, they wanted to help in this process that you're engaged in? Is there anything they can do? Uh, yes, I would, I would love uh, to help in her education. Mm-hmm. I think my family will take care of her security needs, her food, her lodging, and mm-hmm. things like that. But... Um, if there are any organizations that can help contribute to her college education, uh, that would be 
phenomenal. Yeah. So how would they get in touch with you if uh, somebody wanted to help? They can call me on my cell phone. Uh, the phone number is 760-803-8266. And what I'll do is I'll put together a special account because she doesn't have a, a banking account here. Sure. I'll open something in her name right. so that they could contribute uh, to that. I haven't set it up yet, so sure. I. Uh, but I would like to to do that so that they could contribute to some manner to that or offer grants for her for uh, school. If there are organizations that offer educational grants, and she's really excited about the opportunity to go to, to college. Nice. Oh, that's wonderful. All right. Well, that's fantastic. Um, appreciate all that you do and your training. You know, like you've said, you, you've trained local organizations in addition to ones and you know across the world, across the globe, but training people to recognize those signs and hopefully more organizations take you up on that training opportunity so that we can uh, recognize and sense threats before they happen save lives, protect people. Um, and I appreciate that mission that you do. So thanks for taking the time to come and, and chat with us today and share all that you do. Well, thank you very much. And thank you to your audience and to the Chamber of Commerce for this platform. Thanks for joining us on our Carlsbad People, Purpose and Impact podcast today. If you enjoyed it, please hit the follow button on wherever you get your audio. And please tell a friend. We would love to hear your feedback, which you can share at carlsbadpodcast.com. You can leave us a review, ask a question, or leave an audio comment, which we can play on the show in the future. And that's all we have for today. Can't wait to see you next time on Carlsbad People, Purpose, and Impact. And remember, share some kindness today. It's free, creates goodwill, and makes you feel great.